Our guest today is Chris Elias Smith. He is the current director of the Center for Theoretical Neuroscience at the University of Waterloo and is a professor of philosophy and systems design engineering. Chris is a theoretical neuroscientist working on understanding how the brain processes information through reverse engineering and simulating the human brain using his large-scale brain model called SPAWN, which is now able to perform many impressive perceptual, motor, and cognitive tasks at human-level performance. He has also written the book, How to Build a Brain, in which he writes about his approach to understanding the brain and explores all of the concepts and details in SPAWN. What do you think is the most beautiful aspect about the brain? Basically, it's flexibility. I think one of the things we've come to much more deeply appreciate when we've started trying to build our own uh, artificial brains, as it were, and look into AI, we've been able to come up with cases where we can build uh, systems that are outperforming human brains, but it's in typically an extremely specialized area, right? So just recognizing faces or doing certain kinds of classification tasks and so on. Um, and really the amazing and absolutely kind of deeply difficult to understand aspect of biological cognition uh, is the flexibility and how, you know, not only can we uh, sort of without learning or changing our brains do all kinds of different things. Uh, we can, you know, play chess, we can have conversations, we can draw beautiful art, we can play pianos, we can do all these sorts of things without changing anything about our brain fundamentally. Um, and then even on top of that, if we come into difficult situations we've never encountered before, all of this uh, learning systems show up where you know we get better and better at new skills we've never encountered without disrupting a lot of the previous expertise that we've got. And so just trying to build a system with that kind of robustness uh, is, we know, extremely challenging, but it's absolutely been you know, uh, sort of conquered in some some way by biological systems. So yeah, uh, and then the tiny little caveat I'll put on there, and in a power budget of twenty watts. So these yeah, these are definitely beautiful things about the engineering that we see in nature when it comes to the brain. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, when you think of the brain, do you think of it as a a purely information processing machine? Um, what are my uh, what are my alternatives? <laughs> so what I do, I, I, I can't answer that question a little bit less uh, rhetorically. So the brain is a physical system. And uh, one of the most beneficial ways of describing the behavior of complex physical systems for us is to use information processing language. I don't know if this directly forces us into any deep metaphysical claims about the brain only is an information processing system. You know, in philosophy of mind, we know there's a lot of challenges trying to say what is a computational system and what is not a computational system. And I, in my opinion, there is no good distinction between these things. You know, they're physical systems that we put under different descriptions. Um, so to say that the brain is only an information processor, I'm not really sure what that means. Um, I, th I think the brain is a physical system and it's an incredibly complicated one. One of our most powerful ways of describing that complexity is using information processing language. So is that is that a reasonable? Yeah, yeah. And do you think that it will only be possible to understand the brain by reverse engineering it? 
And maybe before that, you could um, talk about what is understanding? Like, could we ever say that we have fully understood the brain? Right, yeah. So just to pick up on your comment about reverse engineering. So I think that, again, is a that's a methodology. So, you know, I do think, you know, this is my entire career is basically devoted to trying to perform exactly that. Um, I really believe that is how we're going to get our most understanding of how brains function and come to have the best sort of theories and quantification of, you know, behaviors and all these sorts of things that we're generally after when we're looking at how brains work. Um, so right, when it comes to understanding the brain, I think this is, a, again, a, an extremely difficult uh, term, the term understanding. It's one that has caused a lot of perplexity to philosophers. You know, people have, like John Searle has written all kinds of uh, claims that we'll never build a system that can understand in the way biological systems can. And if you sort of push him on it and you read his papers about, well, why is that? It comes down to him claiming that there's something special about biology for some reason that systems we build could never have, but that seems mysterious and anti-physical. Like, you know, it, it, we're now beyond the physical world, which is just a weird, you know, your theory has gone a little bit weird when you're sort of in that realm. So, um, so I think there's a problem with the term understanding, right? And you can you can ask this question even of the simplest things. So what do we understand is a question I could, like this is one where I really think for when someone asks me this question, I need to, need to know what they mean by that term. So if they can give me an example of what we do understand, like what do you feel like we we have 100% understanding of X what, and what is X? Because I, I have a hard time filling anything in there. Um, so what I would say is that you know, this is why I like to talk in degrees. I think our understanding is going to become better. We're going to be able to answer more questions. We'll be able to characterize brain function under more circumstances, i.e. you want it's damaged in different kinds of ways. We'll be able to account for data that is captured from many different perspectives. So, we, you know, like fMRI or low-level single-cell physiology when we see what one neuron is doing, or if we look at what, you know, a single channel on a single neuron is doing. This is all data that tells us something about how the brain is working and our understanding of that physical system, you know, should touch on all of this different kind of data. Um, and as we are able to explain or predict more of that data, then I would say our understanding is deepening. Um, but the fully understand part, I think is just, yeah, kind of a diff difficult thing for me to really know what, what the question is asking. Um, yeah. When you talk about reverse engineering the brain, what aspects of the brain are we talking about? Like, is the end goal getting the entire brain with all of its functions with like similar number of neurons, or is it just particular key functions? Um, again, this is <laughs> like a lot of these. So I, I have a paper I can send you where I really think it's important to be clear about what questions we're asking and what counts as an answer. Um, and I know that this sounds kind of like me sidestepping everything, but I think you have to end up here if you really want to be honest about what we can and cannot characterize about brain function. So um, when we say reverse engineering, people often think of this, okay, well, this is for the purpose of building our own artifacts, because that's what engineers do, they build artifacts. Uh, when it comes to that, of course, we don't need to know every possible function of the brain. Brains have all kinds of functions which are really biologically driven, like they, they're there in order to, you know, clean up the extra neurotransmitters that are sitting around in the synaptic clefts. Well, that doesn't happen in any of our you know, devices, but if it means we want to be able to build a system that can robustly navigate an environment it's never been in before, then yeah, brains are good at that too, but they don't really depend on all this other stuff uh, you know, about the low-level neurotransmitter cleanup in order to successfully perform that function. 
So I think typically when people say reverse engineer, it's going to be focused on these sort of practical definable functions, which we can specify somewhat independent of biology. But I think also neuroscientists, sometimes when they say reverse engineer, they mean everything about how the brain functions, because that's when we start taking a biological perspective. We want to help people have brain damage. If the system is physically, you know, malformed or, you know, has some sort of chemical imbalance and so on, we need to know a lot more of those other details. And then maybe it's biomedical engineering instead of AI engineering. But uh, yeah, in that case, the questions we want answer are different and we're going to have to you know, look at different aspects of brain function in order to answer them appropriately. Okay, I think this is a good time to get into SPAWN, um, which okay. is your large-scale brain model. Um, so what is SPAWN? SPAWN is uh, my lab's attempt to build a very large-scale, integrated, and somewhat robust, so trying to, you know, coming back to what you uh, asked about at the beginning, a system, a brain model with spiking neurons, and we can compare it to a lot of the biological data I was just talking about at many different levels uh, that can perform many different functions and do so in a way that is consistent with what we understand about biology. When you talk about the neurons in spawn, like how similar to biological neurons are they? So one thing about modeling is we have control over that. So we can, when we build a spawn model, so we've run the whole thing in spiking neurons, right? So one, one standard difference people like to talk about if they're familiar with neural networks and compare it to brain models is that um, typically in neural networks, as people know them now, these are artificial neurons which do not spike. They put out a number at every moment in time. And uh, if you look at sort of biological models, uh, this is also you know, showing up in things like neuromorphics where they're now including spikes in the hardware and in the artificial neural networks that people are building. But in general, you know, one of the differences between biological models and AI models is that the neurons spike in biology. And so that's a core thing that we want to capture because it's a different way of communicating information where basically you just have a one or a zero at any moment in time. You don't put out a constant number and there's lots of times when you put out nothing. So it's a very different uh, kind of communication and it's uh, one aspect, you know, kind of a fundamental aspect that most people think you need to have in your model for it to be kind of biologically realistic from a sort of theoretical neuroscience perspective. And so when we build spawn, you know, all of the neurons are spiking. Now, of course, there are different complexities of spiking neuron models. So we can, you know, build a model with one equation or we can build a model with 50 equations, all of which spike, um, but they capture many different kinds of dynamics, the flow of different kinds of ions and ion currents, <clears throat> excuse me, the opening and closing of different ion channels. Um, they can uh, capture the physical spatial structure complexity of neurons in different ways. So we can treat neurons as only existing at a point in space, or we can say, no, that's not really true. You know, they've got all kinds of dendrites and axons and uh, many processes that we can model the spatial structure of those and on and on and on, right? So within a model like SPAWN, we can take some neurons and make them really complicated. So we've done that. And then we can, you know, ask questions about spawn that we couldn't ask if the, if the neuron wasn't complicated, like what happens if I put a particular kind of drug into this model, right? So you need to be simulating what that drug affects in order to answer that question. Um, so, yeah, so this is something, and we've played with this a lot, you know, we can, and we can also try turning the spikes off so we can use those completely artificial neurons that don't generate any spikes. We can, you know, have simple neurons that spike. Uh, we can have really complicated neurons that spike, and we do all of them. 
The biggest challenge, the reason we don't run, you know, the full model, so I guess I should mention the full model is uh, current one is six and a half million neurons, 20 billion connections. This is a big computer needed to run that kind of model. And that's with the really simple neurons. Uh, it, if we can take that exact model and put the complicated neurons in, but then you're, everything gets slower and you end up waiting weeks for your model to run. And so you tend to not do that so much unless you really have to. So typically when we put more complicated neurons in, we pick a small part of the model. We leave all the other neurons simple. And then the part that we care about, we're going to put the drugs into just that small part. We'll simulate with, you know, 15 equations per neuron instead of one. Mm. Right. And this entire model, it's, is it a simulation on a computer or is it physically embodied into a robot? Um, so Spawn is simulated on a computer and it has an arm. Yeah, actually, I mean, I maybe I should back up a little bit and give you a better description of what Spawn is for those who haven't seen it. Um, so I, as I said, you know, the reason we built it was to answer these questions about robustness and being able to have one system that does lots of different tasks. The Spawn itself, if you look at it, you know, when we show videos to people, it has an arm, the arm has some muscles on it. It has one eye, the eye is kind of fixed at a screen. It uses the arm to write out its answers to questions that you can ask it. Um, and then- <clears throat> This is a physical robotic arm? This is not. So this is all in simulation, right? And this is like, so if you go and look at movies of Spawn on the internet, this is what you'll, you'll see a picture of like a brain with an eye sticking forward and then an arm drawn underneath. And that arm is physically modeled. So, you know, we have length and it has mass and all this kind of stuff. We control it with torques. Um, so that's exactly you know, what we think is happening when we control real physical bodies, but it's all in simulation. So that being said, we have done things like taken the motor control component Spawn and controlled real robot arms with it, and it works perfectly fine. So you know, we have models where Spawn can like, or like the arm controller of Spawn will write the word Spawn and all this kind of stuff in the physical world. But yeah, just for people to have a clear picture of whenever I'm talking about Spawn, I'm generally talking about the simulation, which is where everything is simulated. Um, and that's, again, this is largely just for simplicity's sake. We know we can take components and put it in the world, but that adds a bunch of engineering overhead, which doesn't always help answer the uh, questions about how the brain works. Right, and currently, um, what can Spawn do? So Spawn can do 12 different tasks. Um, they can be broken down more or less into perceptual tasks, motor control tasks, and cognitive tasks, decision-making tasks, if you will. They range from things like recognizing digits and drawing out the digit that they see from you know, handwriting to uh, you can show it you know, a thousand, like any of a thousand different categories of image and it can classify them. So you know, it knows all kinds of dogs and cows and baseball, whatever. It just it, you know, has like a big, it's like a sort of standard image processing thing that you would see where you can just show it an image and it can say what is in the image. Uh, or it can use that information to respond to tasks. Um, it can uh, count. So you can like give it a number to start at and say, okay, go up by four, um, and then it will tell you what the result is. So you can think of it as like addition or something like that. It can do reinforcement learning. So you can put it in an environment where you just kind of give it rewards and it has to guess, like, you know, it'd be, be like me picking a number between zero and three and saying, okay, guess what number I'm thinking of. And then you try to guess, and then I give you rewards whether or not you guess well. Um, and so it can like learn in those sorts of circumstances. Uh, it can solve simple um, intelligence tests where you give it a sort of patterns of input and it figures out how to complete the pattern. Um, and 
it can, I don't know, I can keep going on, but like they, you can sort of see there's like a, a big variety. Um, it, it does have a simple instruction following where you can kind of combine any of those other tasks in any order, and you can take results from one task and put in another. Um, so maybe to give a quick example of this, uh, I think in some ways this is kind of its most cognitive task. And I, I like to refer to this as mental gymnastics because you can basically ask it to do something and it can store what it, the result of what it did and then use that result to do something else. So my favorite example of this is saying, so this is what Spawn does, but just to give people an idea. So imagine the letter V and then imagine the capital B and then rotate the capital B 90 degrees to the left, put it on top of the V and erase the line in the back of the B and what image do you end up with? Could you do that? Was it too quick? <laughs> so there's two answers people typically give. One is a heart, right? So you have a V with a B on top uh, or a double ice cream cone. Um, but really what you've done there is, you know, I gave you a bunch of verbal descriptions and you took those descriptions and generated mental representations in your head. And then you manipulated them, like rotate 90 degrees and position them with respect to one another. So Spawn can do stuff like that, right? Where you can say, okay, here's an intelligence test. So find the pattern that you need to complete this uh, set of inputs. And then you can say, okay, take that pattern and add it to the number four. Now remember seven digits, uh, and here they are. What was the digit at the number where you got the sum from your pattern and your thing? And you know, like, so just kind of building these things all on top of each other. And then you can say, okay, go. And it will you know, go through all of this sort of internal processing and uh, memorizing of what results were intermediate results and then using them to answer other questions and then write out an answer. Right, so that's probably the most sophisticated thing it does. And like, I always hesitate when people say, what does Spawn do? And I can say, well, it does 12 tasks. Like that's one task, right? But really, you know, you can call it many different tasks because it basically is following a, a, a limited set of instructions, but you know, a fairly flexible one. Wow, that's really crazy that one model can do all of this, all of these things. Yeah, yeah. And actually that's an important point is that the same model does all these things with no changes to the model in between. So if you want it to recognize digits, you say A1. So you basically say recognize digits and then it will. And if you want it to draw the style of the digit that it's seen, you say A0. And if you want it to go into this, you know, here's this complicated set of instructions, follow that, you say M1. And so you just basically tell it what you want it to do next. And, you know, it's not retraining, it's not uh, getting, yeah, sort of weird external inputs or anything like that. It's just like a human brain and animal brains. It's kind of going based on other external input to, to determine what it should be doing right now. Yeah. What's the coolest thing that you've seen Spawn do? The coolest thing? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I think the, uh, these uh, uh, mental gymnastics tasks are pretty cool. Like they're definitely, because, and you can just keep trying to come up with new ones and seeing what it does. Mm. And it basically is really good at them. And the, I guess the other thing that I would count as cool, but it's, it's just ridiculously robust. So you can give it all kinds of weird inputs and it will, when it does things, it's kind of like seems reasonable, right? So you can, you know, change tasks halfway through it doing another task and it doesn't get confused or anything. It'll just like switch over. Um, or you can give it invalid inputs and it will generally either say nothing or interpret it in some way that seems like, okay, yeah, if I was a person and I was getting these weird invalid inputs in the context of this task, that you know, seems like something I would do. So I would say, yeah, which is not like it doing one cool thing, 
I mean, most of what it does doesn't surprise us, right? Because we built it to do these kinds of things. Um, and it's just really like how far it can go in the directions of the things that we've asked it to do. Um, similarly, like the intelligence tests, you know, you can try to come up with all kinds of different patterns and see what it does well and what it fails on. And uh, yeah, you know, it can handle all kinds of weird patterns that were not ones that we explicitly like, oh, we definitely have to have it do this. It'd be more like, oh, I wonder if it can do this. And you stick it in and they're like, ah, all right, that seems like the right answer. So just that kind of robustness, yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah, and I think this robustness is like really cool because and really important because uh, like it's almost like it has common sense reasoning already. I probably wouldn't go that far, but <laughs> it has, yeah, it has, it has more robustness than than a lot of AI models people are used to interacting with. I think I would put it that way. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them don't have common sense though. So. Does Spawn also make um, like human-like mistakes? It does indeed, yeah. Uh, that's sort of, you know, because it's a brain model, we're not actually trying to get it to add two numbers as accurately as possible. Like the computers are good for that. We're trying to get it to add numbers in ways that people do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we like to do is compare how long it takes Spawn to generate answers and make sure that that matches how long it takes people to generate answers. Uh, and similarly, we, you know, one of the tasks is memorize a list of digits. Um, uh, and so we tell it a list of digits and see how it responds. And, you know, it makes mistakes. We can't remember arbitrarily long lists of digits like a computer might. Um, but the mistakes that it makes are ones that we compare to humans and they match it very well onto what you see in the human data. And uh, that's definitely a, a main sort of consideration of Spawn is getting the, the timing right. So, you know, it kind of takes as long as people do to do the same tasks and also make the mistakes that people make. In doing those tasks, but but, but uh, were the mistakes programmed in, or did nope. they surprise? Also, oh, they just emerged. Um. Yeah, <laughs> I always struggle with that word a little. Uh, in virtue of the way that we have built the memory, for like to stick with the memory example, uh, it has it has tendencies like these are statistical error rates and things right it's not like it makes the same mistake every time just like people like people don't make the same mistake every time they just kind of sometimes they remember the fifth digit in a list and sometimes they don't um and it's a little bit difficult to tell why it's going to happen in one case and not in the other um and spawns the same sort of way right so we haven't programmed in you make a mistake when you get to the fifth digit but we have built a model which has the same sensitivity to the amount of data that you're cramming into the memory. So if you put more and more information in the memory, just like in humans, you get failures. And those failures tend to look statistically in a particular way. And this is what Spawn reproduces, right? So yeah, we haven't programmed it to be wrong, but we've picked ways of processing information that reflect how we think the brain works that results in statistical patterns of error that match what humans do. Um, and the same is true for like the intelligence tests and other things as well. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. In terms of actually engineering like Spawn, how do you take a neural function and engineer it into Spawn? So what parts do you code in and what parts do you allow the model to surprise you with? Um, so I think, yeah, the easiest way to answer that is probably the places where surprise are most common are in system interactions. So like integrating the entire model and after it's all integrated, the way things work together is probably where surprise typically shows up the most. Um, so for instance, you know, the visual system is, uh, it's kind of like a standard deep learning model in lots of ways. We get lots of data 
about from natural images and we train the model in order to recognize uh, all the thousand categories that it can recognize and then uh, and then we're done right so then we train it up and and it can do you know image recognition in fairly biologically plausible ways um, and yeah that's you know kind of I guess if you call that programming then we've sort of programmed it in but of course it generalizes in ways that you've never really specified in your data set and all kinds of things like just standard AI stuff uh, and then we move off and we're like okay well we need a memory system so then we go and we uh, build a memory system which can remember you know large amounts of data but uh, you know at the same kind of capacity limitations that people have there we do something more like we specify a dynamical system so we write down equations which describe how information is processed over time and uh, that's kind of our high level description of the function we want and then we have methods for embedding that into a spiking neural network and we use those methods so this isn't really it's not like training in deep learning and it's not like programming a computer but it's you know another process where we kind of specify the function with these dynamical systems and then build it into a bunch of spiking neurons and then we see how it works and if it captures the human data and then we move on to another part and you know for the sort of controller that controls all the flow of information through the brain um, there we really replicated uh, part of the brain called the basal ganglia which seems to play a similar role and that model is more like okay like what how is the basal ganglia structured okay it's like this let's capture that structure and then you know, have the same kinds of connections you tend to find in the brain with the same sorts of neurotransmitters and use that as performing this function that we think this part of the brain performs, right? So this is yet another way where we haven't kind of written down some differential equations that we want to implement, but we've rather gone and looked at the structure of the basal ganglia and we know what kind of function it does implement and then replicate that structure and make sure that we can get the same function out. Um, so you can, you know, write down differential equations to describe all that behavior, but you know, it's a slightly different process than the, the previous one. And then we put these things all together, right? And so um, we've got, you know, there's several other components inside Spawn. And they're, and they're all mapped onto particular, you know, anatomical areas, parts of the brain and so on. Uh, and then we connect them up and, you know, uh, which just means allowing the neurons from one part to go to another part and send the information that they've processed to that next part and on and on. And, and then we see how the whole thing works uh, under all these different sorts of conditions. Um, so, yeah, it's fairly modular in some regards, but the fact that we can put it all together and it stays robust and all that kind of stuff uh, is, yeah, exciting and interesting and reasonably uh, uncommon. Is the is the putting them all together a big challenge or do you generally just connect it and it usually works? Because it feels like um, these processes might like ne negatively interfere with each other. Yeah, for sure. Um, no. So you don't just stick them together and they work. There, it takes some engineering and uh, sort of figuring out how to, yeah, make them get them to integrate. Talk to the basal gang ganglia in a way that the basal ganglia makes the right decisions at the right times. You you can introduce things like learning uh, to some extent, where you know you train it to make certain kinds of decisions by giving reward and so on. Uh, this is something we would like to do more of. Um, but yeah, there's more art than science, I would say, in building these systems. But this is also true of like a lot of engineering of large systems, frankly. Um, getting everything to work smoothly, and then you do a lot of testing, right? And see like what cases does it fail in? Is there interference and all that kind of stuff? Uh, we do have lots of examples showing that you don't get the sorts of interference that you wouldn't expect. Um, so you know, if I'm learning a how to control my arm better, I don't expect that to interfere with my ability to memorize a list of numbers and repeat them back. And so we can show that, yeah, you know, Spawn can learn how to control his arm better at the same time that it's remembering lists of numbers and repeating them back. And there's no inter 
like cross interference between those two things. Yeah, on, on the topic of learning, is the spawn like continuously learn from all of its experiences or is it like a set model? Um, so we have online learning where, you know, it is learning from its experience as well. The model is running, um, but we've constrained it in ways. So like, you know, the motor system will do that. Um, so it, it will, you can just turn learning on and we just always be learning. And what that means is, you know, if I start interacting with an object I've never interacted with before, it has a weird mass. So I might need to learn what that mass is like so I can move this object around my space accurately and then uh, you know, it will always be learning that. And if it comes up to a new object, then it will learn this new object and so on, right? So that kind of thing will be learning all the time. And we also have tasks like this um, one where I was saying you guess numbers and you get reward depending if you guess the right number. So there's tasks like that where it's learning, but that learning is constrained pr pretty much to that task. So it doesn't, you know, sort of go into the other tasks. The, the motor learning, it learns and that affects every task because yeah, it's always using its motor system to give its answers, right? So it uses the same motor system for every task. Which is also like how it works in humans. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, currently, what functions are your lab working on, like engineering into Spawn? Yeah, so the way it typically works in my lab is students come in and they have a particular aspect of biological cognition they find interesting, be it memory or learning or navigation or language or uh, on and on. And so they will start and focus kind of on that area and build a more sophisticated model or better model than what we have in Spawn now and you know often better than what people are doing elsewhere. Uh, and then we every once in a while integrate all of the things that people have done that can go together. So um, we're right now in the more in the stage of building up new capabilities. Most of those capabilities, I would say, are more on the realm of navigation and moving around in space and uh, sort of interacting over longer periods of time and learning about temporal patterns and so on. Um, uh, and on the motor control side, yeah, dealing with more difficult and challenging motor control problems that include delays that you've never encountered before or, or what have you. Uh, and so, yeah, those, you know, those are the kinds of things where we kind of have these projects um, a little bit more independently working on something kind of modularized uh, and then maybe down the road, you know, when we have Spawn 3.0, we'll go back and take all of the work that's been done since Spawn 2.0 and integrate it back into this great big, huge model. Mm. Uh, yeah. Mm. Did you always think that it would be possible for a Spawn to work so well? Definitely not. <laughs> so yeah, the very first version of Spawn is something where I was basically writing my book, The How to Build a Brain. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in going through that book, I had sort of espoused this architecture and this general way of understanding semantics and stru structured by, you know, like cognitive structures and how you could do all this stuff in spiking neurons and talked about how you could basically build a lot of the components. And it occurred to me that, you know, this is going to be far more compelling if we put a bunch of these components together in one single model and say, look, you know, like you, this isn't just a hypothetical architecture, you can actually build stuff with it. And so, uh, yeah, on a plane trip on the way home one time, I kind of designed Spawn. I'm like, okay, well, let me take all the things that we can do and put them all together and uh, and see if it works. And then, you know, I got a unlucky grad student, uh, Sean Chu, and said, hey, here's my idea. Do you think you can make it work? And so then he spent the next six months making it work um, and it worked. <laughs> so it was kind of surprising because it wasn't something that we had set out to build. We had really set out to come up with these general theories about how 
brains do information processing and how the basal ganglia works and how you sort of coordinate information flow across the brain and how motor systems work and how perception works and like all, you know, the way people typically look at it. Yeah. Um, but then by the end of having specified all this, it's like, well, we got enough parts to build a really big, interesting model. So let's try. And, uh, and it worked. So. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, what were the biggest challenges in developing Spawn like this throughout this entire journey? Um, one of the biggest challenges is computation. So the model is big, you know, GPUs have been getting faster, which is good, uh, but they're basically never fast enough. And we can always build bigger models than the amount of compute that we have access to. So that's just kind of a really boring practical problem, but it's one where, you know, we had to spend a lot of time building new simulators uh, and trying to optimize for different kinds of hardware like GPUs, which you can get big versions of um, and other kinds of supercomputers. Um, so yeah, that's kind of been just a practical challenge. I think the uh, on the sort of more theoretical side, um, the biggest challenge is basically that integration stage where you put everything together. And uh, yeah, developing like we've you know developed some new techniques for making that more sort of uh, well behaved. I guess I'm not sure what the right way to say it is, but where yeah we can you know try try to automate some of this bringing together of these parts and having them work in coordination with one another. But that, that remains to be, a, to me, a very significant challenge. Mm. Um, but it, yeah, it's interesting. Like the, the thing I struggle most with is how much are we missing from a model like Spawn? Like given the methods that we've got and the sort of, you know, general way of putting them together, how much of building a big model, like at the scale of the full brain, how much of that is an engineering challenge? We, i.e. we just need the time to do it and the comp computers that are big enough and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and how much of it is like, yeah, we're missing something pretty fundamental about how brains work that we just would never capture with the tools and techniques and architecture that we've identified so far. Um, and I just don't know the answer to that question, right? And you need to do a, a lot, a lot of engineering in order to figure out if you're missing something from your toolbox uh, in trying to capture a brain's function. Because, <clears throat> you know, part of it is that whenever we've tried, we've more or less succeeded. Mm. So I don't know where those limits are yet, um, but I'm sure there are. They they are there, um, but yeah, exactly where they are, I think, is is something that uh, remains to be seen. Yeah, and in the beginning, was funding a big problem? I imagine people would be quite skeptical about whether this would work. Um, I've never really apl <clears throat> applied for money to build Spawn. Uh, it's always. And and this is in some ways not surprising. So I've, I've been very lucky in my career. I have had uh, success getting funding. And that funding is, you know, was sufficient to, and my students have also gotten a lot of funding. Um, so that has been sufficient to support them and me. And, you know, with that fund, with those funds, um, you know, we like in Canada, you're also kind of, they fund a research program. They don't fund a specific project. And so, you know, the research program is funded and everything we're doing with Spawn is in, consistent with a research program. Um, and so, you know, by the time we had built Spawn, uh, it was a thing that we had never said we were going to build, right? It's, we were really looking at, you know, mathematical theories for how brains compute and how dynamical systems can be embedded in spiking neural networks, arbitrary dynamical systems, uh, which can be, you know, it's mathematically challenging, um, looking at how to build bigger and more sophisticated cognitive models. And then at the end, Spawn shows up and then in subsequent grants, I could say, hey, look, we built Spawn. And that actually made everything easier. 
So like once we had already succeeded in some way, and then we could point back to that success, then you get more funding for future research projects where you could do something that, again, we don't necessarily know what it is right now, but we have a kind of research program. Yeah. And could do you think that Spawn could scale arbitrarily? So could you just keep adding more and more neurons to it and it would just get more and more intelligent? Uh, yeah, that comes back to my, my comment about I don't know how much is an engineering challenge. To me, adding more neurons, that's within the realm of yeah, just engineering it to be bigger using the same methods. Mm. Um, I would say that adding neurons isn't straightforward. Like you don't just kind of add them in, in a big blob and then they self-organize into where they go. It's more like, here's a part of the brain which isn't captured by spawn or a particular kind of function and we need more neurons in order to do that well, let's stick them in, right? And would you say that the end goal is once you've reached like similar number of neurons as the brain? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, so. <laughs> I, I would love very much to build a model which has 100 billion neurons in it and does all the things that the human brain does. Mm. That'd be awesome. I'd be very happy. And how close are we to that, that goal? Uh, we're not that close, I don't think. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, how many years? I have no idea. And, and also, like, yeah, you need dedicated teams of people to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, again, yeah, I, I don't know how much of an engineering challenge it is. If it's just an engineering challenge, then we could be, you know, within 25 or 30 years of that. But I'm guessing it's probably not an engineering challenge, and there's sort of more that we need, and we don't know what it is yet, and then it's going to be longer. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So it's going to be quite a while before I get to interview Spawn on this podcast. Probably, yeah, that would be my guess. <laughs> be waiting at least 30 or more years. Um, yeah, and, and, and there's also just practical challenges. So like running 100 million neurons on a GPU would take a gigawatt, or 100 billion, I should say, would take a gigawatt of power. Like, what? <laughs> this is like several several power stations or, you know, it's like, the, that's just not reasonable. So uh, yeah, we, we have to rely on there being advances in hardware development and running larger models more power efficiently and all this kind of thing, right? So we're so many orders of magnitude away from the efficiency of the brain that trying to build things at the scale of the brain might just be practically not, not a non-starter for many decades, but maybe not. People are definitely working on that problem hard. Yeah, um, I'm like I'm curious uh, about your thoughts on the nature of thoughts. So, do you think that Spawn has thoughts? <laughs> this is another kind of question I like to throw back at people. So, do mice have thoughts? Yeah, that's the that's the question. What are thoughts? Yeah, or insects? Do insects have thoughts? Because they have a lot of the same chemical makeup that we have, and they've got neurons just like we do. Uh, they have neurons with some slightly different properties than we tend to have. They've got fewer of them. Mm. Um, yeah, so I'm not quite sure where thoughts start and don't start. If thoughts means information processing inside a system which is using spiking neurons, then yeah, Spawn has those. Right, yeah. It has mental representations, I would say, or internal representations at least. I don't know if the word mental carries much weight there. Mm. But it doesn't have, does it have language? Um, I mean, it has simple linguistic structures, right? So when it's solving those uh, intelligence test kinds of cases, it's, um, yeah, it's got structure, like a structured representation of information, which is language-like in some ways. It doesn't have full human natural language, but 
Yeah, I mean, lots of biological systems don't have full language for sure, right? Cats, dogs, and everybody who still have really sophisticated, far more sophisticated behavior than Spawn. Um, but yeah, Spawn has a lot more, uh, and also when it's doing instruction following, right? It's basically encoding instructions. <clears throat> so it has like little, <clears throat> excuse me, has a bit of syntax and it has some semantics and you know that kind of thing, which defines those um, instructions that it can follow. And that's quite language-like in a very abstract sense. <laughs> <laughs> Looking into the future, um, will do you think that's like, you know, if we do get to reverse engineer the entire brain, would Spawn ever be conscious? And, you know, at what point does this simulation become like alive? <laughs> yeah, people love asking these questions. Um, I, again, think that we can flip those questions around onto, we don't need to talk about Spawn. Like, so when, when do biological systems become intelligent? And are conscious, like are insects conscious, are mice conscious? And you know, like if we if we can answer the question for the biological system, then we would know the answer for the artificial system, right? And I don't think by having an artificial system at the sophistication of spawn, in any case, it's going to help answer that question because we don't know. If we build, if we keep building spawn and make it more and more sophisticated and get more brain functions, and it starts talking to us in exactly the way that a conscious person does and it reports conscious experience and on and on then well it looks like we got it right so it seems like it showed up and then maybe because we have much better access to spawn than we do to biological systems as far as what they do and how they're structured maybe that would actually let us start answering this in a fairly detailed way right what parts exactly of spawn are in there that are allowing it to generate what we're considering uh conscious experience or for it to have conscious experiences and so on. Um, so yeah, I think it's a bit of a impossible question to answer, frankly, in the context of a model like the current spawn, which is really simple in some ways and nowhere near as sophisticated to things that we think are definitely conscious. Um, yeah, yeah, but once once we do get to that level, like, like yeah. there's so much complex, like, would you have, say, ethical considerations about like shutting it down and stuff like that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if it's if it experiences suffering and it tells you not to shut it down and said, "What are you doing? Don't like, don't kill me." Like, it's <laughs> I would definitely have some reservations about, yeah, you know, mistreating uh, artificial systems. I don't know if you've seen the movie AI, the Steven Spielberg from yeah, film from yeah. a while ago. That's exactly what this is about. And um, yeah, I think you know, for the same reasons that we have misgivings about mistreating animals, they can't complain, but they sure exhibit a lot of behaviors that look like they're suffering and are in pain and you know, are all kinds of things that I think we want to ethically avoid, you know, I think, yeah, the same, again, ways that we come to make animals ethical agents are, uh, you know, reasons that we would make artificial agents ethical agents. Maybe let's get into artificial intelligence for a bit. Do you think that once we've reached the end goal of spawn, is that basically getting artificial general intelligence or do you think that there are easier routes of getting to AGI compared to reverse engineering the brain? Yeah, I'm guessing there would be easier routes. So I would say, but at the same time, I think Spawn can help show those routes, right? So uh, yeah, I don't think we necessarily have to build something to the level of sophistication of a full biological brain in order to get something that we would probably count as artificial general intelligence. And it's just that we, we don't need all of the functions that, that humans have likely. 
um, to get there. And there's going to be sort of shortcuts we can take and things we can ignore that biological brains do and, and on and on, which maybe get us there sooner. Um, I think that's, you know, it's also difficult to know when you're there and when you're not there. But yeah, I, I would imagine that we'll get there sooner than trying to, you know, uh, solve all of the problems that we would need to solve in constructing a full brain model. Absolutely. Um, but at the same time, I think we learn a lot from those brain models. So Spawn, I think, has some hints about how we might be organizing our AGIs, right? So just like that kind of architecture, again, slightly abstracted, or the kinds of dynamical systems that are good to implement for doing information processing in a way that makes some some uh, artifacts seem like an agent and kind of like respond in the right lengths of time, more like people do. I think that's probably going to be important for building good AGIs. Mm. Yeah, and do you think like current artificial neural networks that we can make them more powerful if we incorporated more biological aspects of actual neurons? Um, I think potentially the biggest place that we will get an advantage by following biology closely is in the development of the hardware. Right, so communicating with spikes like the brain does can be far more energy efficient than not than you know communicating the way that artificial neurons do right now. Um, and really, what you do, what you're doing when you build some of this uh, neuromorphic hardware, which is spiking, is you're making a lot of the compute much more local, and so you you don't have to send clock signals around through the entire system and all these other things which can cost a lot of power. Um, so you have like local memory, local compute, and event-driven uh, processing. And that can be far more energy efficient than what people tend to do now. So we might be learning some important lessons for you know getting to AI that's you know actually practical and energy efficient by looking at some of the techniques that biological brains seem to have exploited. Um, at a more functional level, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm like again, I, you know, as I was sort of suggesting before, looking at the control system that we've got in Spawn, which is one that's patterned after how biological systems coordinate across all the brain areas that they have to coordinate across, that might be something quite important for built in AGI. And do you think like AGI would need to have a body? So, this idea of embodied cognition, like, do you think, uh, do you think that this intelligence can only come from? having a physical body and being able to interact with the physical world? Uh, that's a tricky question. I like Part of me thinks that we'll probably have to embody our agents in order to build AGIs kind of to start with and to figure out how to encode all of the knowledge that comes from having the body, which is critical for communication purposes. But once you've done that, I don't know if it if that agent will have to have a body, right, in order to then be an AGI. So basically, this would be like, I train up a, a brain in a body so it knows what it means to you know drop something on the floor and have it shatter. And then I dissociate it from its body and put it in the internet and it just you know, floating around between computers. And we're like, oh, I dropped this thing and it shattered. And, he's, and the AI, AI is like, oh yeah, I know what you mean. Because like I have memories and I have experience. I know what that is like. But, and so I can converse about it or I can you know make inferences about the next thing you might have done you went and got a broom to clean it up like just all this kind of world knowledge of ours that depends on having a body and knowing how the physical world works you need an agi to know a lot of that in order to make it an agi right that's where the general part comes from so that entire realm of knowledge whether we could somehow program it in without having a body or at least simulating a body like you know having really sophisticated physical simulators um 
without having something like that, it might just be not possible to to make something which is general enough to to warrant the label. So another large scale brain model that people are currently working on is uh, the Blue Brain Project, where they're basically trying to simulate the entire brain with uh, all of its connections on the supercomputer. Do you have any thoughts about that? Do you see them as competition? Um, I don't really see them as competition because their brain models don't do anything. So I think like I've, you know, I've been pretty open about this criticism of the Blue Brain Project. Uh, so they, you know, they're very focused on low level biological details. So they tend to build models where all the neurons have, you know, 14 equations per cell, um, which as I said, you know, we can stick those in spawn if we want in particular parts, but it's, it's very computationally expensive to run. And so they, they have big computers and they run, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these neurons with all that detail in it. And they connect them all together. And then they look at how the voltage changes across the cells and all that kind of stuff, but that's it. Like the, the model doesn't do anything, right? Like it doesn't recognize an image or it doesn't control an arm or it doesn't make a decision or it doesn't do stuff. And I find that just to be a different kind of model, right? So in, in Spawn, you know, we care about biological detail for sure. And we stick it in and we think we're trying to answer biological questions, but I think the brain is a controller, right? The brains are for controlling bodies. They're for controlling our social interactions and language production and reasoning. And it's all about that control and function. And so if you don't have that in there, um, yeah, it, it seems like a different different goal uh, that you must have in mind. Yeah. Are there other large scale brain models that are currently being developed? Um, yeah, of course there are some. Um, it also depends exactly what you count as a brain model. I know uh, Randy O'Reilly's group, have, they built some pretty big models. And uh, they, again, they tend to have slightly different focuses. They don't tend to worry about spiking neurons very much. Um, they don't have a lot of motor control uh, that I recall. I mean, they can move around inside environments and things, but they don't sort of like you know, yeah, deal with like seven degree of freedom arms and all this kind of complexity and so on. Uh, a little less focus on the cognitive side sometimes, but yeah, they you know they build neural networks. Um, Often they're artificial neural networks and they don't have the spiking and stuff like that. But I don't think that's huge, a huge problem. You can still learn a lot about brain function with artificial networks. You, I do worry a little bit that they make assumptions which wouldn't uh, allow their models to work in a biological setting. Um, but maybe I'm wrong and maybe they could and that's just not something they care to do. I'm not really sure. But they do, you know, they at least have neural networks that tend to be pretty big and try to integrate some uh, decision making and vision processing and attention and uh, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, there are also these huge language models that we see coming out of like Google and all those. And I don't know if they count as brain models or not, but they're big neural networks. They're actually ridiculously big neural networks, trillions of parameters, you know, much bigger than Spawn. Um, but they're extremely focused on, yeah, doing like natural language processing and people generally don't care to compare them to how brains actually process natural language and so on. So maybe they're not really brain models. Um, but yeah, it's, there's, there's not a ton of people doing that. There's, there's a group of people that do um, cognitive architectures, right? Where they build models which are trying to explain human cognition. And they sometimes they have components which are neural networks and other components are not neural networks. They're more like computer programs which are processing, you know, like if the, if it's raining outside, then I need an umbrella, like just processing that language as opposed to 
you know, doing spiking runs and all that kind of stuff. But they they try to build more integrated large systems with some perception and some motor control and decision making and so on. Um, and that's kind of similar in spirit to some of what uh, Spawn is interested in capturing. Yeah. So Spawn is the most brain-like functional model out there right now. We like to say that. <laughs> I like to. It's the world's largest functional brain model. Is how I like to. Yeah, that's great. Make it <laughs> superlative, but yeah. yeah. Let's talk about you. Um, how did you get interested in theoretical neuroscience and building a brain? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. So, uh, I'm fairly old, old enough to be uh, uh, sort of captured by the idea that neural networks could do something cool before they could do anything cool. So when I was an undergrad in engineering, you know, people had these really simple neural networks connectionists that built things that seemed like they could learn how to generalize ED endings and people built neural networks that could classify mines instead of rocks and uh, yeah, like just really, really simple things that never didn't have any commercial applications. But, you know, I was intrigued by the fact that they were neural networks and they were kind of brain-like in some ways. And uh, as I went through my undergrad and into my graduate studies, I became very interested in understanding how, sort of at the psychological level, how people work and why they make the decisions that they make and what our best theories are of how to ex explain how people do what they do. And, uh, and that kind of led me to a PhD program, which was called Philosophy, Neuroscience, and Psychology. And it was in the philosophy department, but it had these other two neuroscience and psychology components as well. And when I was doing that, I um, started working with people in the neuroscience school, Charlie Anderson in particular, he had some really interesting ideas that kind of brought engineering together with understanding how brains functioned. So, you know, my engineering background was useful in that respect, and my philosophy background kind of drove me to understand what mental representations and how you, you know, how people worked, all the philosophy of mind questions. Uh, and yeah, so those two things kind of came together very naturally in the area that's now known as theoretical neuroscience. It wasn't called that at the time. Um, there was an area called computational neuroscience, which was a little bit more typically about mm, sort of modeling biological data and doing data analysis and so on. But there was always an element in there of, yeah, building your own models of how these things actually work, building really big complicated models of a single neuron um, or you know, the kind of stuff that we gravitated to where it's more, how do populations of neurons represent and process information and how can you make those bigger and blah, 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 blah. So that's sort of my, my route into it. And then I got a job at a philosophy department, which was open to letting me continue that kind of work uh, here at Waterloo, and now I'm, you know, jointly appointed between computer science, or sorry, between uh, systems design, engineering, and philosophy, and have a cross appointment in computer science, where you know everything kind of comes together, and we have a nice center for theoretical neuroscience where we really pursue this, yeah, idea that we want to build these mechanistic models of how brains work that are kind of biologically realistic, and we compare to biological. Uh, behavior and data and so on. Um, and then with an element of, yeah, let's see how it works in robots and stuff as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting background. How, how do you think your background in philosophy has changed the way you think? Um, well, as you can probably tell from some of my answers, <laughs> philosophy makes you think pretty deeply about what claims are easy to justify and not given particular ways that you think the world does or doesn't work, right? And so, because, you know, one thing philosophers will always do is challenge your assumptions. And uh, I think philosophy has taught me to do that. And I think it's been extremely beneficial for 
being reasonably clear, at least I hope I try to be clear about, you know, what assumptions I do make or don't make or, uh, yeah, what I'm trying to accomplish and, you know, being careful about what questions I am trying to answer and I'm not trying to answer. Um, a lot of work in, you know, a lot of my philosophy work is also in philosophy of science, which is understanding, you know, what is a good explanation and what is not a good explanation, what kinds of explanations are there out there, um, what kinds of questions are reasonable to answer and not, and, you know, on and on. So, yeah, I think just giving a general uh, framework for approaching scientific questions and uh, thinking deeply about what we mean when we use mental language and talk about representations in the context of mental representations and you know what counts as a good psychological explanation or neuroscientific explanation how can you bridge those levels Th these are all questions that have a real deep philosophical roots i think have uh, sort of informed how i approach them in my more theoretical neuroscience kind of work mm. And what advice do you have for you know students who want to enter this particular field and get involved with research involving large um, large scale brain simulations? What what do you think is the best educational route to take? Um, I don't know if there's one best educational route. I'd say that you want a strong quantitative background. So if that comes through physics or computer science or engineering. Um, any of those will do as it were uh, but one of them is pretty critical like just having the ability to you know write down math and think in terms of vector spaces and all these things that we and dynamical systems all the, the things that we tend to do and we're trying to build models quantitative models of how the brain functions you i think you really want that kind of background um and mostly it's the case that uh students get that background in their undergrad and then during their graduate studies they can then start looking more at neuroscience and psychology and sort of these other fields. Uh, on rare occasions, I've seen students go the other way where they sort of started with a more psychology background or neuroscience background and then learned all the mathematics and stuff sort of later in their degree. Uh, but that's definitely the harder direction to go. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm definitely on the latter one, actually. OK, and are you I, finding I it hard? Into, <laughs> I want to get into theoretical neuroscience. And currently, I'm doing a biomedical science undergrad. Right. Um, and you know, there's zero quantitative training whatsoever. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah that is that's really a huge hard. challenge. It's also really hard, like learning math. You know, it's it's hard to learn math by yourself. It's like yep. there's no um, sort of pressure to get you going through the exercises which is totally crucial in math and it's just hard to balance with like your course going as well yeah. um yeah <laughs> yeah and it, it, it sucks because you you go into undergrad thinking i want to study the brain and you go into neuroscience you like you wouldn't think of going into physics or computer science or <laughs> yeah unfortunately that's true but you should actually it's funny because at waterloo we were trying to design an undergrad neuroscience program where yeah you start doing computer science and math and all that stuff at the same time you start doing neuroscience and basically making it like a technical neuroscience approach everyone that i talked to in the neuroscience field thought that was a great idea you should totally do that and unfortunately we just couldn't get it through the administration it was you know there, there's all kinds of complexities i don't think it's anyone's fault or whatever but i still think that is the kind of program i would absolutely love to see designed and developed and would encourage many many people to go to because uh, I, I do believe that the sort of future of neuroscience is going to be in the hands of people who have that combination of quantitative skills and biological understanding and experimental skills. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> um, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm interested as well. Um, what do you do when you get stuck on a problem? So what motivates you to keep working on it? Um, what do I do when I get stuck on a problem? I usually switch problems, <laughs> to be honest. I, don't, I uh, yeah, I usually have so many different things going on at the same time that if I get stuck on something, I leave it for a while and then come back to it later. And often just that switch of context or you know, getting myself to think about something else uh, is helpful. Um, and yeah, when, like if a problem is in the back of my brain, then everything I start doing after I've encountered the problem, I think my brain is just relating it to that challenge, right? And so even if I'm in a totally different field and I start reading some new kind of math I'd never heard of before or something, I'm like, hey, maybe this can help me solve that problem that I had a week ago that I've put aside for now. Um, so yeah, I don't tend to dwell too much on problems. Uh, uh, yeah. If they're really unsolvable and I just don't, like, don't know what the next best thing to do is, sometimes you know I can run into problems where it's some quantificational challenge, which is like just requires more detailed math knowledge than I have. So I will go and try to find somebody who can help me out, or you know, is an expert in that field uh, or what have you. Um, but those are those are that's kind of straightforward. Those that, those are the easy problems in some ways to solve, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, the really hard ones. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't tend to just stay fixated on them because I have so many other things to do and <laughs> so many other problems. Do something you else. Can, yeah, like models like Spawn, you know, there are a million different, okay, that's an exaggeration. There are many different problems that show up um, and there, but there are so many different components you have to get them all working, right? So you can always just switch components or mm. whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about neuromorphic computing as well. So that's something else that you also work on. Yeah. So what is neuromorphic computing? Yeah, I've, I've brought this up already in the interview, just when I mentioned hardware that works kind of like the brain. That's essentially yeah. what uh, neuromorphic computing is. And so, you know, right now, if you look at the hardware market, you've got a lot of neural accelerators because people, AI is huge and everyone wants more and uh, people want to put it on the edge. And so, you know, all the new phones that are being released are coming with an AI chip in them. And so those AI accelerators are good for accelerating artificial neural networks, typically. Uh, most varieties, not all of them. But uh, there still are certain assumptions that are made and ways that those architectures tend to be structured. And uh, neuromorphic architectures break away from those assumptions. So I would definitely distinguish neuromorphics from AI accelerators, uh, which are neural network accelerators, but they're not really neuromorphic. And what the neuromorphic part tends to emphasize are things like using spikes to communicate, doing event-based processing, having sort of more fine-grained parallelism is not uncommon, uh, including things like learning on the chip. So you know you have this online learning sort of approach. Uh, those are the things that you tend to see will make something more neuromorphic or less neuromorphic. Um, sometimes if it's analog instead of digital, that also looks a little bit more neuromorphic. Um, and that really is where you get the biggest power savings, but it's also the hardest to commercialize. So. Uh, you know, yeah, there, there's so there's not like one thing which makes a chip neuromorphic or not, but when the hardware designs start moving in those directions, then they become more neuromorphic. And so, you know, there are digital neuromorphic chips and analog neuromorphic chips, and there are uh, chips which have event-based processing and there are chips that don't. And there are chips which use spikes and are neuromorphic and some which aren't, although spikes are almost, almost universal, I would say, in neuromorphic chips. Um, but yeah, and any sort of group of those kinds of features in the hardware tend to make it neuromorphic. Mm. And right now, are we moving, are we moving into like, are more and more things becoming like neuromorphic computing? Um, 
Well, so right now there are really no widespread neuromorphic chips being used in commercial applications. Uh, you know, right. Intel just announced their latest neuromorphic chip. It came out like last week. It's called Luigi 2. And they don't seem to have commercial aspirations for that chip. It's you know really a research chip, and they have a research consortium of a bunch, uh, mostly academics, partners who are trying to yeah you know get the most out of that chip and explore exactly what kinds of algorithms run on it well and all these sorts of things. And yeah, this is something that I've definitely been involved in with uh, quite a lot. Um, but yeah, it's not like showing up in more of your handheld devices or wearables or what have you. That's uh, still more in the future for neuromorphics, but hopefully it gets there sooner rather than later. I, I do think that there are huge opportunities to do that. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, we, we've built algorithms that uh, can run extremely efficiently on special purpose hardware. And so I'm involved with a company that's you know, looking at exactly doing exactly that. And hopefully that's the kind of thing that will become commercial. And really it has this kind of roots in neuromorphics. Um, but even that hardware that I'm talking about here is not specifically a neuromorphic chip. So I think it'll be a little while still be before we see uh, many neuromorphic chips up there. But hopefully, yeah, hopefully sooner than later. Yeah. You, you mentioned like quite a lot of advantages of neuromorphic computing over traditional digital computing. So like what are the challenges with going commercial? Um, so I guess, the, so the biggest challenge is probably, uh, money. <laughs> so like getting money in the hands of people who want to commercially release their chips uh, is uh, necessary for those chips to actually be produced and, and all that kind of stuff. Now, the reason that it's hard to get money in those people's hands is because there's a lot of uncertainty about what application areas you're really going to do better with a neuromorphic chip compared to a non-neuromorphic one. Uh, the the dis difference in power can be sort of subtle when it comes to special purpose applications. And it's just easier and cheaper to build a special purpose non-neuromorphic chip than a neuromorphic one. Um, so yeah, finding exactly the right application area where you know somebody's going to buy your chip in bulk and, and so on. Like You have to kind of tell that story um, before you're going to get the money that you need in order to kind of go commercial with it, right? Uh, and I think this, in some ways, this is why Intel is being a little bit reluctant to release their chip commercially is because they don't feel like they've identified that exact niche where neuromorphics is kind of the, by far the best solution. And it's just easy to justify. We're going to sell millions of chips and, you know, we can either make them a lot cheaper or they're going to just way outperform anything that anyone could do now. Uh, but uh, do you see neuromorphic computing, like in the future, completely taking over digital forms of computing? Uh, so a lot of neuromorphic is digital, just to be clear on that front. Um, but yeah, I do think there are a lot. Well, and, and, and so your question is, is neuromorphic going to take over all AI acceleration? Um, probably not, although I really do think it could take over most of it, especially in like robotics. So I, one of the big advantages of neuromorphics is time, basically, that it just it very naturally processes information over time. So if you're interacting with an environment and you're processing video and audio and motor control, then a neuromorphic chip, I think, is going to have advantages uh, almost for sure over the way that people generally do stuff right now, because you're basically embedding a lot of that temporal computation into the local neurons on the chip. And so they are more efficient in those circumstances. Now, if you're just doing like image processing and you're like, here's a static image, classify it for me, then yeah, you probably don't need spikes in neuromorphic computing. And if that, that's probably an application area that will stick around and you'll probably use normal AI accelerators for doing that kind of thing. 
And those temporal computations are much better because it's similar to how the brain works. Yeah, so that's right. I, I would say that, you know, what I see as the fundamental difference between how standard neural accelerators work and neuromorphic ones is that the unit of computation is different, right? So in a standard AI accelerator, I have a neuron, you know, a node or a thing I call a neuron, which has a nonlinearity and I get some input right now. I get an input and then, then my output is some nonlinear function of that input. And that's what, you know, these uh, chips are designed to do really efficiently, like huge numbers of multiplications to figure out what the input of that neuron is, and then huge numbers of nonlinearities to figure out what the output of the neuron is. In a neuromorphic chip, all of that has another component to it, which is time. So my neuron is not only a function of my input, it's a function of time. Like how long has it been since I saw other inputs? How has this input changed over time? You know, all these sort of temporal ideas come into uh, play when you're actually building the system. And so if you are doing processing of information over time, then yeah, that, that neuromorphic chip basically has fundamental components which are more naturally able to process that information uh, and more efficient at doing it because those chips also sparsify the information over time. That's what sending spikes out are. And if you sparsify, then you pay less power to do the same processing. And so, yeah, you, you really start to shine in those uh, cases where you're doing a lot of processing of information over time which is of course what biological cognition does. Biological systems are always processing information over time, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Going back to neuroscience just for this last bit of the podcast. Um, mm -hmm. So there have been a few proposed grand unified theories of the brain. So for example, the thousand brains theory of intelligence by Jeff Hawkins and his colleagues at Numenta. I don't know if you're familiar with his theory. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? Or like, in general, do you think that we could ever get a grand unified theory about how the brain works? Um, so yes, to the latter part, I do think we can get a grand unified theory. I don't think, so I struggle to call the thousand brain theory a theory, to be honest. Um, I don't see it being quantified in any useful ways. So, you know, when we talk about Newtonian mechanics as a theory of how physical objects move. We've got equations that capture that theory and specify what we're actually saying about the world. And we know how to map those equations onto the world. Um, there's nothing like that in the thousand brains theory that I'm aware of. Um, I, I, I struggle. For, um, those who don't know, um, the thousand brains theory of intelligence basically says that uh, because grid cells in the uh, entorhinal cortex basically map the relation of the agent to the rest of the spatial world. Um, if we have grid cells in the neocortex, then maybe um, everything can be explained in terms of a in terms of mapping a cognitive map. So, for example, language or problem solving or uh, semantic knowledge is all could be mapped in a cognitive map through uh, potentially these grid cells in the neocortex. That's that's what Jeff Hawkins and his colleagues are proposing. Um, so, do you think a grand unified theory would have to have these uh, like equations that specify stuff about the brain? Yeah, absolutely. So the brain's a physical system and we have equations that govern how neurons work. And if we're giving a theory of how a bunch of those neurons work together, I don't know why the equations disappear. Right, yeah. So your theory doesn't, your, your theory, like you, can, you can give analogies in explaining your theory. You can say things like, yeah, a bunch of areas vote for you know what our perception is that's what you know the thousand brain theory is they use this voting analogy but it's like well what do you mean by vote 
right? So does a single neuron vote when it issues a spike? Because people have talked like that before and they said, yeah, a spike gets a vote. But that doesn't sound like what the thousand brain theory means when they say vote. I have no idea what vote means. And I should be able to say, oh, by vote, I mean this particular biological biophysical process. You know, this is what the neurons are doing when they're voting. This is what they're doing when they're not voting. This is how we can tell the difference. And that's all quantifiable. And so then you should be building, you know, detailed models, which show how your uh, system can actually be a grand unified theory. Like, I, I honestly think that Spawn has a bigger claim to grand unification than anything I've seen people do with a thousand brain theory, because they just don't build anything that big. I've never seen them do motor control, right? I, I mean, they do a couple of kinds of simple perception problems. They don't even seem to do them that well if you compare it to what people are doing with standard neural networks. I mean, I mean, I don't want to be too harsh, but yeah, I, I find it very uncompelling as a theory, and I find it strange to call it a grand unified theory, to be honest, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, there's lots of interesting things to say about grid cells. That's true. You know, a lot of the things that they say they are referring to, yeah, interesting ideas that have come out of the brain. And we find grid cells in more than just the entorhinal cortex where they originally discovered. And that's well known. Um, but then to say, well, that's how the whole brain works. It's like, uh, that seems like a bit of a stretch. And for me to give that any amount of credibility, I really want you to show me what you mean by that's how the whole brain works. Like, you know, here's 12 tasks. So we've gotten spawned. Do all of those with your thousand brains with less than a thousand brains but yeah yeah but there's there's also a lot of people who reject the idea that there could ever be a grand unified theory of the brain because of um you know like evolution doesn't have to make sense and the brain just does whatever it does to make its stuff work so um maybe just different parts just work so completely different from each other that we can't ever have a grand unified theory um what are your thoughts on that um, so maybe it depends where you want the unification to happen. So, you know, all of the things that the brain does uses neurons. So there's a sense in which we have an underlying physical substrate, which is unified. Um, it would be strange for neurons to, and you know, there's a finite number of different kinds of neural cells, and there's a finite number of different neurotransmitters that are used, and, and the numbers aren't necessarily super small, but they're not crazy huge. Um, and so, you know, if our grand unified theory is, well, for cell A, this is how it processes the information and B and blah, 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 blah. Uh, but that captures all the cell types and everything you're going to build that's a brain is using just those cell types and those neurotransmitters. Then, you know, you've unified everything that a brain could possibly do. Of course, I think you should go farther and say like how that maps onto information processing, how information is being uh, transmitted and changed and so on through those different sorts of biophysical processes. Uh, so we, you know, we should move up from just like here's each of the neurons and they can all do everything that brain must do. So, you know, we want sort of different levels of unification uh, for sure. And I, I think that, uh, yeah, all the different functions that brains do, you know, we know they're very plastic. There seem to be consistent ways in which brains learn and that a lot of what they do is based on how they learn. So again, you know, it seems like a thing that we can probably have a pretty unified understanding of what kind of plasticity mechanisms there are in brains and how those will result in the sorts of, uh, modular modules quote unquote that aren't really modules but you know how brain areas specialize in particular ways um so yeah i think there's there's lots of evidence that yeah you know brains are kind of unified from a physical perspective and so coming to understand that at least seems like a reasonable level of unification and whether we can get higher levels of unification maybe that's a little bit more of a question um it, it always seems a little bit strange to say that brains do one thing or that, yeah, you know, here's the fundamental unit of computation in the brain, and it's some collection of a million neurons. It's like, well, 
if you look at those million neurons in a different part of the brain, what do they share beyond that other thing I already said, which is like the biological substrate and the mechanisms that they can use to program themselves and all these kinds of things, right? So yeah, yeah, you can, again, you know, maybe this is the philosopher in me, but it depends what you mean by grand unified theory, where, like at what level of unification are you looking at? And same with the word theory, like what do you mean by theory? Like maybe the thousands brain theory is a theory in a very sort of uh, loose way that we might not count as a scientific theory, right? So there are theories that are not scientific theories. Um, and maybe I'm being harsh when I say, well, you know, for me, a good brain theory is going to have some mapping onto the physical substrate, but you really want to say something about how that works in order to call it a brain theory. Uh, right. Maybe it's more like a framework of understanding stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah maybe it is. I, I think I think it has problems at that level as well, thinking that yeah, grid cells are going to explain everything that brains do seems a little bit un unlikely to me, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts on Neuralink as well. So this is yeah. a company um, by Elon Musk. Um, they're doing brain machine interface. So short term, looking at maybe uh, 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 studying brain diseases and brain function and long term, some crazy stuff like transmitting thoughts through brain machine interfaces. Yeah, uh, yeah what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I think a lot of it's very achievable. So I think you can, if you, if you think it's okay to do those things, <laughs> that might be a different question. Uh, yeah, like I'm not, I'm not a hugely into, uh, modifying our bodies to make them work better for us. I mean, yeah, there's obviously some things I'm comfortable with, like wearing glasses and getting laser eye surgery, but having devices embedded in our brains to improve our cognitive, uh, performance might go beyond what I think is appropriate, but if that's, I don't know if that's the question you're asking or not, that's a different question. That's not my area of expertise, right? My area of expertise is more like, do we think that we could build these artificial devices that we could put in brains and record signals from them and then send them to another brain and communicate information? Yeah, absolutely. We could do that. And the sort of the bandwidth we'll get out. I mean, that, that's interesting to figure out uh, what bandwidth is reliable or possible. Um, and there's a lot of difficult sort of biomedical engineering problems with you know, like interfacing machines to biological substrates, but there's lots of interesting work in materials development that uh, I think is going to solve these kinds of problems. Um, and, and there's also definitely really good justifiable uses of this, where if somebody is uh, quadriplegic, for instance, and they want to control a robotic arm, and then the only way we can think of doing that is to, you know, uh, interface a device with their brain directly. Uh, yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense to me, right? And we participated in that kind of work in the past. Um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. It's interesting because, like, I think um, like Carl Friston was talking about how it's fundamentally limited because it's almost like trying to control the weather with just a few satellites or something. Um, and that, like, the brain is such a dynamical system that it's hard to really control exactly what you want just with the brain machine interfaces. We're not trying to control the brain. We're trying to have the brain control other things, right? And so there the, the challenge is figuring out where in the brain are the signals that are the ones you need in order to control the external device. And we definitely, unlike the weather, right, which is sort of interfacing with the physical world at every single point, uh, inside the brain, there seems to be a little bit more organization, and there are places where there are literally, you know, signals being sent down nerves that control muscles that move my arms. So, 
you know, there, there are these sort of choke points and the question is like, how far back can we go? Um, and, and like, you know, can we go from the nerve endings right back into the brain where the, where those nerve endings started or got their original input signals and then start at that location and decode biological motion that people are trying to, or, or motion that people are trying to execute. And the answer, like, we know we can do that to an, a degree, right? Um, and I think there's a lot of room for improvement for sure. Um, yeah. And same, you know, the other place you tend to see these is on the input side. So we have a retina and all of our vision goes through our retina. And so if, if somebody doesn't have a retina and we make an artificial one and it has, you know, the couple hundred thousand neurons that are projecting from the, maybe it's a million, I don't really know the number, uh, that are projecting from the retina through the uh, optic nerve, if we can replicate that part, then yeah, that's, that's not trying to control the weather, right? That's just re replicating the information going down a million wires, so yeah. And just last two questions. Do you ever consider the possibility that you might just be a spawn of a higher <laughs> being that simulated you? Right. The matrix. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I think the, the world, the, the sort of physical world that we're in is um, far more complicated and subtle and uh, interconnected and all these kinds of things than we could ever simulate in a computer. Right. And so the, the yeah. It, it seems, it's not unimaginable, obviously I can like, you know, construct the thought experiment, but from our best understanding of physics, it's not physically possible. So I'm not super concerned about living my life in a dream, uh, but yeah, it's fun to think about. You might not be able to tell. You might not be able to tell, yeah. Yeah. Well, that would, but that requires an entire physical reality outside of our own, right? So it's, it's nothing really to do with a brain or not. If somebody would have to have a, be simulating the entire universe. They can't just simulate me, right? Like that's, that's boring. They have to simulate every possible measurement I or anyone I can talk to could make of the universe, or they at least have to simulate it making reasonable sense. And they have, yeah, it is like, it, it just gets so complicated. If you actually try to really imagine what's required to replicate and replace absolutely every possible interaction we could have super hard right it's just like we feel like we can imagine it but at the same time i don't really think we can imagine it it's just like beyond our comprehension to figure out yeah to even begin yeah yeah okay um what advice do you have for young scientists pursue a question so find something that you find fascinating and uh just you know, deeply interesting, and then learn all the methods and things that you need to answer that question. So I, I would recommend that as opposed to picking a field and or learning a bunch of methods. It's more about the question, right? So for you, for instance, you know, you, you said that you went into biomedical uh, to get a biomedical science degree, I think, right? And, uh, you know, if you are coming across brain questions that are the ones that are interesting you and you want to understand how they work from this sort of mechanistic perspective and people who do that seem to be building these math models and programming computers and stuff well then learn how to build math models and program computers right i mean that's you know it is hard to learn off the internet but you can learn off the internet right you can practice this stuff and it can definitely be hard i, I don't want to like make this sound easy but i do find from you know, i'm speaking from personal experience the thing that made me continuously learn new skills and I've learned lots of new skills, you know, ever after I got my PhD, I've still learned lots of new skills. The thing that made me learn those skills is the questions I was pursuing. Like, how does the brain work? What's going on in memory? Like, how does, you know, and then they can get pretty detailed questions, but yeah, often there's this bigger question behind them, which is sort of, yeah, 
for me, it's like how do brains function in a, as a physical object? How are they doing what they're doing? Yeah, that's great. Chris, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Paco. Yeah, thanks for having me.